Welcome to Podship Perth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. From as early as I can remember, my dad has always wanted me to call him Yorick. He reasoned that, after all, it was his name, and a good one at that. Now that my children are both adults, I realize how my parents are bridges to our shared history, a history of family and humanity. My dad's now 87 and has lived a life full of adventure. Today's episode focuses on the earliest part of Yorick's life, growing up on the run from the Nazis, which took him from Paris to the medieval French town of Vézelay to Marseille to Morocco, where he nearly died of the plague, and eventually his escape to New York. Let's start the interview. I'm here with one of my favorite people, my father, Yorick Blumenfeld. Welcome, Dad, to the show. Thank you, Jared. I'm very pleased to be here. Okay, let's start at the beginning. You were born in 1932 in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and then at three moved to Paris, which was kind of all against the rising tensions that led to World War II. I had a strange youth in terms of moving from Holland to France and then later to the United States. And the change of countries and had a big impact. However, I think the, the economic situation of my parents was also very instrumental in this. And I was uh, often hungry. And I think I, I suffered from bouts of malnutrition, uh, which was accompanied by uh, lots of, of different colds and ca- viruses and things which, which lowered my resistance. The first uh, two years in, in Paris were very poverty-stricken. Then things turned and were all right for a while until the World War II started. And then again, and there were periods when we had very, very little to eat. And I feel that people today are much too finicky and fussy about food and that they should have more respect for the food that is available. There should be much greater tolerance and appreciation of food than there is today. And do you remember war breaking out? Very well. My parents being confined to a small village outside of in, in Burgundy because my father was a German and therefore an enemy alien, and we were kept in this little uh, village. And then my father ultimately uh, was able to join us when, when uh, he, he fled from Paris and the war started. But the interesting thing was that the people who, who owned this place and ran it uh, were actually Germans. Mm. And uh, after the war, they were shot for having uh, undermined the French Republic. Was there a lot of fighting at the outset of World War II, or, or what was it like? In the beginning, the first stages of World War II, there was no no real fighting anywhere. Uh, we said that we couldn't stay in the, this hotel anymore. Could we go to Vesley? And the police uh, said, sure, you can stay there as long as you report to us regularly. Vesley is a magic medieval town. How old were you then? I was uh, eight and a half, nine years old. I had no friends at all my own age. I had my brother... Uh, my sister, my mother, and, and my father. A very close family time, yes, indeed. We were also told uh, n- not to eat any 
any candy we found on the street or in the countryside because they said that uh, the Germans were dropping poisoned uh, candies to kill children. And we heard a lot of airplanes, of course there were motor, uh, motor-driven airplanes uh, flying overhead. So why did you leave Hazelay? Because the, the Germans were ad- advancing uh, through France. By that time, my father had been sent to a French detention camp for the criminally insane. And um, my sister was just over 18, and she, as such, was declared as a German citizen. So she was sent to a woman's uh, detention camp in the southern France. So that left just the three of us. I was uh, being stoned in, in, in the schoolyard by children who, who, who called me South Bush, dirty German, and, you And know, they just picked up stones and threw them yes, at you? Yes, threw them at me. So this and was... And how did a, it stop? I might not going to school anymore <laughs> at that time, but everything was breaking down. I mean, all of France was breaking down. You have to understand it was a chaotic time. So how did you begin your long escape to New York? My mother had been in telephone contact with my uncle and her first cousin to come down to Vaisley, pick my mother, my brother and me up, and then we would drive south. When Hans came, we then went in a car, down the main route, and then we were bombarded and the machine gunned by German uh, planes. This was at the uh, end of May uh, 1940. And so we had to get off the, the roads and take byways, and we were lucky not to be hit directly by any bombs that the Germans threw on the, on the uh, main roads. Uh, we were in the, in the country uh, lane towards the middle of France, and we ran out of petrol. There was no no way to go any further. So we were in, in this little community, of a farm community, where the, the man was very kind and, and put us up. We could sleep in the barn, and that was a good experience for for a little little me and my brother and my mother. And we were, we were very lucky because we were three miles south of the demarcation line between where the, the, the Germans had stopped. And we were in, in Vichy, France, France, which was uh, not to be occupied by the Germans at that time. And so we were extremely lucky that, you know... That's where you ran out of gas. The, the second night we were there in this farmhouse, uh, we heard artillery fire and things in the distance, and we thought the Germans were going to be there. And then suddenly in the middle of the night, everything fell silent and... It was the end of fighting in France for the time being. We were able to first pick up my sister. Then all, the, all four of us went to pick up my father and, and get him out of there. I was just quite horrified. At first, I didn't even recognize my father when I saw him. He had lost so much weight, and he looked like a skeleton of himself. Uh, his head I mean, was shaped. I mean. Yes. And so I was, I was quite, quite terrified to see what had happened. Once the family was reunited and, you know, it was, it was a very chaotic time and we were all together. We were eating again. My father was coming back to, to his more normal self. I remember still, you know, spending time looking at the wonderful water snakes in the river below where we were staying, hmm. which were, were splendid, wonderful water snakes. The armistice had been signed, uh-huh. and, and, you know, France was divided in two, and the uh-huh. Germans were in control of uh, most right. of the northern France. My father was, was desperate to get out of uh, Vichy, uh, France, and that was going to be very difficult. If we'd stayed 
About six months later, in, in 1941, uh, at the end of 41, the Germans started to come into an, the unoccupied uh, area and started rounding up Jews and doing other unpleasant things. When we went to Marseille, uh, uh, well, my father had gone before us uh, and had, you know, made certain arrangements and had made contacts with uh, underground people who were able to sell him passage on a on a ship going to Martinique in the French Caribbean. There were queues around the block of people wanting to get American visas. And uh, uh, without the visa, you couldn't go to, to America. And even so, uh, we didn't get a visa to go to America, basically. We got a visa to go to Martinique. It was really all frenetic at the last minute. My father didn't get the tickets till uh, the morning that we departed. Wow. And uh, we didn't know whether we were going or not on that on that boat because uh, the, and the man who gave that to us was shot the next day. He was killed. We were on a cargo ship, and there were about a hundred and fifty, mostly Jews, but not not entirely Jews, hmm. uh, uh, who were fleeing uh, Hitler Germany, Hitler's uh, Hitler's Europe. Did you feel Jewish? Not at all. I, had I mean, no did idea. you know that you were Jewish? No, no, I had no idea. Mm. I mean, there, I, I heard people talking about Jews and Judaism and so forth, and uh, my my parents saying that so and so is Jewish, and, but that didn't make any had no impact on me. I mean, I I had not gone into a, a synagogue until I was about twelve years old. Mm-hmm. I never had been in a synagogue. My father was interested in the beauty of the architecture. He was not interested in in the religion at all, and both my parents were not religious. And then why did you end up in Morocco? Well, because the pestilence broke broke out uh, on our ship after we were there for two and a half, three weeks, uh, docked on on the the harbor. We weren't allowed to to leave the ship. The pestilence broke out from the rats that were there, and they began to get nervous about the the rats uh, carrying the the plague over to the uh, servicemen on the ships. And so we were divided into two groups, the A to M were going to the south to a little detention camp called Azamur. And um, it is about, I would say, 80 miles south of Casablanca, very secluded place. And uh, we were guarded by French uh, Senegalese guards because they didn't want, you know... Um, Anyone else to get sick. I had recurrent fever by that time, so I was, I was close to death. And was very lucky I didn't die. A number of the little children died. Mm. What is recurrent fever? It's a plague. Uh, It's a plague. My sister's teeth were loose. My mother and father had big... uh, Welts. Not welts. They were were sort of pus Mm. growing um, Mm. things. uh, 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 That that is quite frightening, I mean, because they, they carried the marks then for the rest of their lives. Those seem like just unbelievably frightening times, but somehow you miraculously all survived the plague in that hellhole outside Casablanca and managed to find your way to the U.S. We went back to Casablanca and took a ship from Casablanca to uh, Lisbon Mm, and Lisbon to New York as there was one ship. And once I was on the ship, it was terrific because I was able to get as much sugar as I wanted in my tea. I would put half a bowl of sugar in a glass of, water, of tea water and uh, uh, drank it up uh, uh, with, the, with the people on the, the Portuguese looking at this and couldn't believe their eyes. 
I don't think that I recognized how uh, serious my condition had been. I mean, I knew I was very sick, but I didn't know I was, you know, on death's door. Yorick, thank you so much for sharing that traumatic part of your childhood with us. Um, Just to fill in the story before we move on, you arrive in New York at 11, speaking absolutely no English. You work extremely hard in school and are then accepted to Harvard to study Russian history. You then join the U.S. Army to fight in the Korean War. You meet my mom, Helene, in a bookstore in New York when she's at Columbia. And then you become a writer in Washington, D.C. for Congressional Quarterly. Together, you and Helene move to Paris, where you join Newsweek and eventually become the bureau chief of Newsweek's Eastern European office, run out of Vienna. This was the 1960s, and it was the heyday of being a foreign correspondent. My dad was basically James Bond with a tuxedo and cool cars. As you'll hear in today's episode, my dad is really a big picture thinker. After my brother's born, you all move to England to a small village called Grangester, where you create a house full of artwork from New Guinea and a wild garden. You become a freelance writer for all kinds of glossy magazines, from Life to Geo to Washington Post. And as soon as I could take pictures, you brought me with you, which was very brave. And we'd be a father and son team with you writing and me taking photos. You wrote an international bestseller called Jenny, My Diary, about a woman living in a nuclear fallout shelter. You've edited a series of about 20 books for Thames and Hudson on the future. And to this day, you write an amazing blog on your views of current events, big and small trends that are shaping the planet, called yorixblog.com. Okay, so that brings us up to speed. So the arc of your life really maps incredible changes in human history. When you were born in 1932, there were 2 billion people on the planet. It's taken millions of years to get 2 billion people living on the Earth. And now we have 7.6 billion. There's just been literally so much change that you've witnessed. I think uh, change has been increasingly a, a worrisome matter. When the first uh, bombs were dropped on Japan, I felt that was an enormous change for mankind. I used to have nightmares because I lived in uh, New York City that all of Manhattan would evaporate in one big cloud. The whole existence would uh, vanish. I also wonder about the uh, population increase in the world, which is something that really I do find quite frightening because it's still going to rise from its current level to probably 9 billion people uh, by the end of 21st century. And I think too much of the earth is being covered in concrete and, and buildings and pollution and all the rest of it. You've spent most of your life that I've known you researching the concept of utopia. At the beginning of the 1960s, created your own utopian community outside Christchurch in a little community called Nelson, called Philia. What does utopia mean to you and and why did it hold such a powerful sway over your imagination and life? Well, I think I was motivated by a variety of of forces, but at the top of all of these was uh, that we could try to experiment in forming a different mode of living. I wasn't quite sure how it was going to come out and how it was going to end, but uh, I thought that getting together a group of people who had a similar desire to improve the world and to try new forms of 
political association uh, was worth the effort. And I was really motivated by that. As well, uh, I must confess, the area that I'd chosen, the South Island of New Zealand, was that it seemed like the most likely place to survive if there was a thermonuclear war, which we came somewhat close to with the Cuban crisis in 1960. Too. And so I was not that far off the mark, but um, I, I had experienced leaving Europe and coming to America, Nazi Germany uh, and its forces. I, I saw the next danger was not the Nazis, but the bomb. And so I thought that New Zealand would be a good place to try such an experiment because it was underpopulated and we could be fairly free of too much intervention from the outside world. What's been the secret to your good health? The answer is definitely not sugar. Really? Hmm. It uh, may be hu- maybe honey. Okay. But, um, sweet no, things, though. Uh, sweet is, uh, it helps. Uh, I don't uh, drink any alcohol. I don't smoke. So those uh, have uh, helped. You take uh, a nap? I take naps, uh, regular naps, uh, which I enjoy do- doing. I think the fresh air in Grantchester is is, uh, most helpful. So why did you move to Cambridge? I left um, living in in a big city. Uh, My whole life has been spent uh, first in Paris, uh, then in New York for almost 17 years, and then in Boston. Uh, I was in Tokyo for a while, uh, then then back in New York and and Washington, D.C., then ultimately as a correspondent, then Vienna, And I was tired of the big cities. I wanted to be somewhere where it was green and I could breathe well. So that's another thing that you do that we have to add to the list of healthy living, which is you spend a lot of time gardening. Indeed. I have a a wonderful garden and it's more than I can handle all on my own. But I I, uh, enjoy being there and and, uh, working in it and bending over and pulling up weeds and things like that. I especially appreciate that you garden in a tweed suit. It's very gentlemanly of you. Thank you. Do you still consider yourself American? I mean, you were born in the Netherlands, and you've lived the majority of your life in this house. I think of myself as half American and half European, and I'm somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic I'm between the two. I'm very interested in what is happening in America because I think it's terribly important. I'm less interested in what's happening in, the, in England. When you watch American news, what does it make you feel? How do you view it with your life experience sitting here in England? It's a dreadful stage that America is going through, and I think it's a, it's a very divisive, contentious time with very little collaboration and cooperation and matters like the public interest have vanished uh, completely from America. So I I look upon it uh, with a a degree of horror and hope that uh, it will change. That's why I watch the news, because I at any time hope that things will alter dramatically. So talking of being both a British resident and a European and an American, I remember Ramey was very shocked and surprised when you said that you were for Britain leaving the European Union during Brexit. Has your view changed? I was hoping that the that Europe would change its perspective on the horrible events surrounding the migration of millions of people being treated abysmally. And I thought that that and the way the European 
community was dealing with economic crises in Greece was most undesirable. Unfortunately, I didn't really see uh, how limited the perspective of the people in the United Kingdom were about uh, immigrants. They really took a strong dislike to people trying to come to England and establish themselves here. And uh, their views were so narrow and limited that I thought, no, this this is not what uh, Europe needs. This is an England that is uh, strongly anti-immigration. So Yorick writes a blog. Um, you can find it by looking at yorick'sblog.com. And one of the... It's really great. I, I'd encourage everyone listening to look at it. One of the areas you spent time researching and thinking about is the impact of capitalism as a system. I do feel that uh, we need a, a complete overhaul of the e economic system, that money must be extinguished because people will always want to have more and more and more. And uh, if one can only alter the needs that we can have fulfilled uh, for food and warmth and, and clothing and a much simpler life, we can do without the capitalism, which has been uh, phenomenal in changing the world, but we must uh, stop uh, this rapid change. We have to get to something that is calmer, and that calm can only come when we get rid of money. Are you an advocate of a basic income, um, this concept that people should, irrespective of their circumstance, be entitled to income that provides for shelter and medical costs and food. I'm uh, most enthusiastic about basic income. I think it's it's a wonderful thing. Uh, that Everybody who is born deserves a certain basic subsistence payment, which will uh, permit uh, that person to grow up and, and study and see what direction in life uh, they want, would want to take. I think the production of goods and so forth are generally overrated. And really, we are in this state now where production is so successful uh, that there's no longer need for people to work in factories around the clock uh, for, for things that they don't like doing or are useless to them. Much of the society that we live in um, can be almost run on a voluntary basis, that people can help each other. Oxfam came out with a report saying that the top 61 income earners in the world make as much as the bottom 50% of humanity. So more than three and a half billion people. Well, it would seem just those 61 people could work very happily and they could give that money to three and a half billion people. It seems like a good idea. Yes, and I think uh, under the basic income, uh, that would, would be uh, perfect. I mean, why can... 61 people hold half of the world's money and the other half uh, have, have almost nothing uh, by comparison. And uh, this becomes a, really a question of a much greater equality would, of course, hurt the people who have all the money at the moment. So in Yorick's blog, one of the ones that directly relates to what we're talking about is one from last year called What Kind of World Do We Want to Live In? And... This is a quote from it. So where are we headed? Do we really want to transform human nature so that in the 21st century consciousness will be uncoupled from intelligence? 
Harari, the popular writer philosopher, suggests three more mundane developments in the 21st century, which are likely to overwhelm our human experience on this planet. One, humans will lose their economic and military usefulness. This will lower their value in economic and political terms. Two, the human collective will retain its value, but not its unique individuals. And three, a new elite of upgraded humans will arise. Regrettably, people don't spend enough time looking at where, you know, we are headed because uh, people are afraid to do so. Uh, they are also geared to looking at the short term and the whole capitalist world is a short-term proposition. That's not a long-term proposition. Do we want to uh, send people to, to the moon or Mars or somewhere else? Is that really where we want humanity to go? Aren't there many things that we can do on this earth, which is a wonderful place, incredible place, and try to save that from the pollution that threatens us and long-term pollution? We're a speck in the universe and... We act as if we're the center of the universe, that everything important is happening on Earth. Yes, of course, we are, we are at the center of our lives. Why should we uh, spend all that energy and money and resources uh, getting somebody on Mars? It's not going to be that welcoming a place. Where, given that, should we put our money and our resources and our thought and attention? I think the environment and the and the state of the earth is what we should really be looking at and making sure that we can survive uh, on this earth. You're a big nature lover. We're just outside today. You, Last time I was here, you were talking about the collapse of bee colonies. And today you were mentioning that there's no more starlings that you see flying around. The reason that we have no bees or very few bees here in Grantchester is that the fields around us are sprayed with chemicals which distract the bees so that they can't find the colony back. The population of insects generally has fallen dramatically in this area and we we do these things without thinking about the consequences. I mean, yes, the fields produce more corn or whatever, but it also destroys uh, the land in which uh, these new crops are grown. The frogs in, in the pools that, that used to be quite uh, frequent are, are now gone. So when you say For, gone, you, they're just not there at all? They're not there anymore, no. That's horrific and very sad. It is, it is sad. but They uh, were your friends. Yes, they are my friends. I tried to bring uh, uh, Spawn back from France and other places, but uh, none of that has been successful. As far as the frogs are concerned, there are viruses, there's poison, there are all these things that are, are killing a species which uh, I think basically are, are very important because the frogs used to eat mosquitoes and these are now more prevalent uh, and are even coming up from Africa and living in, in the United Kingdom because uh, the temperature here has risen slightly and it prevents uh, all these mosquitoes from being killed off. Some survive and form new species and they're, they're treacherous. So given this calamitous state of affairs, where do you feel positive? I feel positive in the sense that in this very changeable world, some good things happen as well as unfortunate ones. I think we are learning the importance of controlling our ways and being more, more equal. I think also the awareness that now exists uh, about the environment, and that will in a short while transform itself into politics in 
the United Kingdom as well as the United States. You've been married for more than 50 years. What's your secret to success? I think it's, it's, uh, it depends very much on finding the, 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 the right partners. If people have very little in common and get married for other reasons, sexual attraction or whatever, this may not be sufficient uh, for them. On the other hand, if you're married with uh, a partner who is at the intellectual and mental equal, it will, will be successful. Okay, but I mean, you help around the house. You do a lot of chores as well. It's not all mental compatibility and stimulation. It's There, there are rewards in helping another person uh, live uh, their life to the fullest as the other partner is uh, interested in doing the same thing for you. And so, uh, you know, at certain stages in one life, one changes. In the 80s, things start to change quite rapidly. So you have to make way for, for the changes and accept them uh, willingly. If you had any doubt where I got most of my moral and other convictions, now you know the genesis, Yorick. Thank you for being such a fantastic father, and thank you for doing the interview. Well, thank you for having me on this particular show. A huge thank you to Yorick for talking with us today. Each year that I've known Yorick, he's gotten easier and sweeter to be around. Yorick walks every day on the Grantchester Meadows, eats his Parma ham and other little delicacies, and is in the best shape of anyone I've ever met at 87. He drinks four or five cups of tea a day with two big spoonfuls of honey. Maybe that's why he's so sweet. Finally, a big shout out to Yorick for being such an enthusiastic supporter of Podship Earth from the very beginning. In the next episode, we talk with doctors who are taking on climate change. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, I hope you have a week filled with pride. Podship Earth.